Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Bo this morning. Since we're in the first year of the triennial, that means we're in the beginning of the Parsha, which puts us at the beginning of chapter 10 in the book of Exodus. We, of course, are not reading, because we're reading the first third of every portion, we're not reading the second and third third of every portion. So we're coming into the middle of the action every time. We've skipped two-thirds, right, of a whole portion here. So we... (laughs) Exactly right. Exactly right. So in this case, the foreplay consisted of plagues. We are... uh, entering into the introduction to the last set of plagues. So you have to remember your Passover Seder to remember what happened up until now. And we're jumping in right as Moshe is called to talk to Pharaoh again. Uh, and we know what Pharaoh's going to say. And then we're going to get the plague of locusts. So we're, so the plagues go in, if the way scholars have have looked at the plague narrative and how it's constructed. The plagues go in three sets of three, and then there's Makat Bechorot, the slaying of the firstborn. And there's a pattern for each three set, each of the three sets of threes, there's a, there's the same pattern. Either Moshe speaks and warns, or he doesn't, or Aaron does something, or he doesn't, right? It's the same in each of the three sets of plagues. Like for the first plague in that series, X happens. For the second plague in that series, Y happens. In each set, and then there's the, you know, coup de gras, the slaying of the firstborn, which is its own thing. So that's plague number, as we know, plague number 10. All right. So we are used to hearing the story. We know this story. We know the story better than a lot of stories that we think we know, right? Because we hear this around the Seder table every year. And even for those of us who don't really read, okay, this is going out over the podcast, who don't really read the plague narrative every year, um, or even necessarily the whole narrative every year, um, it's still so burned into our consciousness about right the that evening. And, um, and we've heard it since we were... You know, young, whether we grew up Jewish or not, people, right, have been exposed to this story. So I want us to do what we always do, which is take what we know and set it aside, right? Take our assumptions and set them aside and let's look at the text the way we always do and enter this moment differently than, oh, yeah, I know this part, right? All right. So let's look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his courtiers in order that I may display these my signs among them, and that you may recount in the hearing of your sons and your sons' sons how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I displayed my signs among them, in order that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may worship me. For if you refuse to let my people go, tomorrow I will bring locusts on your territory. They shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They shall devour the surviving remnant that was left to you after the hail, and they shall eat away all your trees that grow in the field. Moreover, they shall fill your palaces and the houses of all your courtiers and of all the Egyptians, something that neither your fathers nor fathers' fathers have seen from the day they appeared on the earth to this day. 
With that, he turned and left Pharaoh's presence. All right. Mic drop. So here we are at verse 1. We're going to spend a lot of time on verse 1 at the end. Because um, a lot of the te- you know, I always leave you, hopefully, with a teaching that speaks to right another level of understanding this text. And um, and most of the ones I'm bringing you, and I'm, I couldn't decide, so I brought you like four, three or four, um, are all dealing with the first words of the parsha. So we're gonna we're gonna come back to it. Um, let's note it now, though, what's happening there. Um, so Bayomer Adonai El Moshe. So God says to Moshe, what does God say? Bo El Paro. Go to Paro. That's what your is that what your English says? Go to Pharaoh. Interesting. If Rita Ephros were here, I would pick on her. Um, Because what does the Hebrew say? Which is? Come. Come. Doesn't say go. Your translations have changed the meaning of the word. Right? So it's so important for us to remember that all translations are interpretations. Always. Always, always. It does not say go to Pharaoh. It says, Bo el paro, come unto Pharaoh and say unto Pharaoh. And so even in Hebrew, that is not the normal way you would say that. You would say, lech. You would say, say. You'd say, go. Right? So this is where the commentary like goes absolutely crazy with what does it mean? Why does it say come rather than go? It seems so, you're explaining this and I don't why would why those translators do that? It, it seems so clear. It's so interesting because I think that the sense of the sentence is go to Pharaoh, right? Like it. So you could even in English say come unto Pharaoh and say to him. But it, if you were going to put it in regular English, if someone said come unto Pharaoh, like if you were to say what does that mean, you would say go to Pharaoh, right? So it it's not. It's not, and I'm lifting it up and hammering it, not because the translation is wrong. It's that it's translated what it means, probably what the idiom actually means, into normal English. What I hate about that, though, is that we lose all of the nuance of the Hebrew that, that there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and pages written on the Hebrew not being the normative way to say that idiom. Does that make sense? So they're not wrong. JPS isn't, or whoever, isn't wrong. It's just not as right as I would like it to be for people who don't read Hebrew, right? Who don't know that otherwise. I just, come unto Pharaoh would be much more in keeping with the Hebrew, and then you would understand the commentary that says, why does it say come instead of go? Come unto is much more conciliatory than go. That's a stronger command. I, I think come is... Come, just enter into his presence. Go means go, wait to be invited, and and stand there. To me, come means just you go right in there. Because the Pharaoh says, come. So already in English, you can see that we have differences around how we hear go means, okay, you'll go do something, but it doesn't say anything about Pharaoh or his presence, right? Come unto Pharaoh means get into his face, get into his presence, right? Well, Reuben? I, I was, if somebody said to me, uh, come unto the rabbi's office, <laughs> I would feel that 
that person is already there. So this is a this is another very important point. Come insinuates you're there. You're there. And who's talking here? The, the, the God. The God. Right? So God is talking here. George? God said, Wait, George, George has got to say that. Come unto me is the standard thing. Come to me. And that the next line says, for I have hardened his heart. So I am, in fact, acting as the Pharaoh. So when you talk with the Pharaoh, you are, in fact, talking to me because I have hardened his heart. Because I am there. I am there. So that's exactly where Rabbi Rami Shapiro goes. And we're going to see his beautiful explication of exactly that. That you say, come to a toddler, right? Come come to me, right? Come, and that means, that suggests I'm there. So if it's God talking, and God says, come unto Pharaoh, then God is Pharaoh? Rabbi Rami Shapiro says, of course. Because God is reality, capital R. God is not all the touchy, nice, lovely, fluffy, candy things that we want. God is the all of it. And we split off what we want to deal with about reality and call that God. But in fact, God is the whole business. And that includes the dark and the terrifying and the oppressive and the scary and the horrible. That's a lot to sit with. That's a lot to sit with, and you miss it if it's if all you see is go on to Pharaoh, right? Go to Pharaoh and tell him. Bert, you were going to say something? George said it. Oh, good. <laughs> okay, good. There's the implication that God is behind what's happening with the Pharaoh, and that God is present there. So when he says, "Come," it's like, "Come, watch what I'm going to do." Mm-hmm. With kids, we say, come on, let's go. Mm-hmm. Right? And certainly, certainly, the character God here is about, come on, let's go. Because Moshe's not exactly been an eager, right, partner in this work. Like, Moshe's, he's... Now with the program, but Moshe's not been eager of it. So what do you? When do you say come on to a kid? It's when the kid is dawdling. Well, at least in my experience, <laughs> that was a lot of when I and I said it a lot. Come on, right? So um, it's when they're dawdling. It's when they're not with what your agenda is, which is to get moving or to hurry or to right. And um, clearly God has all along in this story has had a sense of urgency about Moshe getting on with it. <laughs> like, you know, like, come on. We got, we got things to do here. I have a question as to who's there. Who's, as who's there? Because at the end it says, with that he turned and left Pharaoh's presence. It doesn't say they. Meaning Moshe and Aaron? Right. Right. We get to switch back and forth a, a lot in the plague narrative between Moshe and Aharon or just Moshe. This is probably one of the remnants of the tension between the Mushite and the Aaronid clans. The Aaronid clans would have insisted on it was Moshe and Aaron. The Mushite clans would have only had Moshe be there. So we have some textual leftovers. If this is the first time that, which probably just shows my ignorance, that God is making it more difficult for the 
Israelites to leave Egypt because he has taken over the Pharaoh's mind and has hardened it. So why? Well, uh, it's another test. Uh, a test for whom? Moses. What, how does it test Moses? Because he has to go and it's more difficult for him to talk with the Pharaoh. So what, but the text tells us God, God admits why God is doing this. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> right? <laughs> Verse 2. Oh, that he wants to show his power. Yes. Right? So that you may recount. So it's not, so yes, God is going to show God's power in order that you tell your sons and your sons' sons what I did. So what's the central purpose of God doing this? To show his power. I, I want to push it past there. Hmm? It means continuity. How? By you telling the same story to your sons and your sons' sons, that doesn't just mean your sons and your sons' sons. It's the whole thing. It's the whole thing. I guess the assumption is you would only be alive, hopefully, to see your sons' sons. But the implication here is every generation. So, so what is God's point in doing all of this? That God is their God. <laughs> that God is their God. So the point, as I understand it, the point is y'all are supposed to remember and tell every generation about the exodus from Egypt and the great signs and portents and miracles that happened there. The point is zikaron, is remembrance, is the telling. That's the point. That's certainly the point of the Seder. That, and it worked <laughs> right right we we are doing it <clears throat> that this is this is the this right here telling your children and your children's children this story is what 90 something percent of Jews do it's the only thing that about 95 percent of Jews do that's one lesson we learned <laughs> <laughs> They don't light Shabbos candles. God knows they don't come to shul. Like that, that is not, what do almost all Jews do? This. It was incredibly effective. I'm, I mean, I'm not speaking for the events. I'm speaking for the injunction to tell the story of the events. Whether they happened or not is, of course, not something I'm terribly concerned about. It doesn't matter to me. What, what happened is mythic. This story happened for us as a people mythically. And we eat it every year. We eat the story every year. There's the message. Go go through the stomach. Go through if you're Jewish, go through the stomach. It's absolutely part of it. Um, so in that sense, this is that's the point is is that we will tell this to the generations after us and what that does is creates an active sense of memory that it happened to us, right? We are told, ke'iluhu, right? Yatsami Mitzrayim. We're to consider ourselves on the night of the Seder as if we ourselves left Mitzrayim, left Egypt. Not a story about somebody else. We're supposed to tell it and feel it and taste it, right? When we're around my table, I always say, take enough maror that it hurts, don't wimp out and like put a little tiny little on the corner of the matzah and load it with haroset. It's cheating. It should hurt. Like we're supposed to experience, right, that. 
the theater of it is that we ourselves went out from Egypt. And that creates continuity, that creates a narrative of belonging, of shared experience that is supremely powerful. It is supremely powerful. The Seder also includes the sons, the four sons. I mean, it, that story is repeated over and over during the Seder. Absolutely. And, and actually here is where we get some of that language. We get... Um, right? Right? And it doesn't say that. Right? And in order that you may know, I am Yudhei Vavhei. Right? And here Moshe, because it's in the singular in the Hebrew, Moshe becomes the personification of the people Israel. Well, it could be plural, but I'm saying it should be they rather than you, that the children may Correct. Right? So it's very obvious that this is done for the people who are going to do the telling. And then, by the way, he's also including the daughters. In the green book? Rather than saying that your sons may know. Yeah. What, what does the Hebrew say? Uh, vincha, your son. Well, in Hebrew, ben is child. It's also son. In Hebrew, because Hebrew is a gendered language, it's yelled. I want to have a child. I want to have a yelled. But yelled is boy. But it, it doesn't mean I want a boy child. It just means the the neutral for infant, baby, child is masculine. You right? Unless you want to be sure you're saying boys and girls, then it's Torah does that sometimes, um, and sometimes and so it's my communication skills are really not very good by the end of this week. Um, if you use the feminine, it's specific. If you use the masculine, it's inclusive. All men are created equal. It's not about men. We know it is, but it isn't, right? So all men are created equal. If you put all women are created equal, it's saying something very specific that you're not saying if you say all men are created equal. That's the Hebrew. So it's son, your son, and your son's sons. Um, but, but the women's Torah commentary wouldn't be wrong to translate it, your children and your children's children. English is infected with the same male bias. We have male men, policemen. Yes. So it, in English, you have a male bias. In Hebrew, you actually have a gender issue. Like, so in Hebrew, like in other Romance languages, the table is actually masculine or feminine. There isn't... Yes, we have a gender bias, but we also have neuter that we can use in a lot of instances. There is no neuter in Hebrew, so I forgive Hebrew a little more than I forgive English um, because cause there's no way around it in Hebrew. It has to be masculine or feminine. There's no it in terms of referencing objects or, or people. All right. What's happening now? So so Moshe and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, right, thus says yud the God of the Hebrews, Making it clear who this is, right? How long, and this is God speaking, Moshe speaking as, as, right, the prophetic voice here. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? The, the me being Yudhei Vafe, of course. Let my people go that they may worship me. 
For if you refuse to let my people go, tomorrow I will bring locusts on your territory. They shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. So that means a swarm of locusts that is a terrifying occurrence in this part of the world. It, it happens and it's terrifying. Um, I will read you because I just found it fascinating from my notes um, that say, the locust swarm has always been one of the worst scourges to afflict humanity. An area of one square kilometer can contain 50 million such insects, which in a single night can devour as much as 100,000 tons of vegetation. 100,000 thousands of stuff, of vegetation. So More than, more than 1,000 times the total amount that we raised during the high holy days. <laughs> there you go. That's a lot. That's a lot. So, um, so if you think of that, think about how absolutely terrifying that is. So, because we had what we had a plague that, that dealt with the agriculture before, right? What was that? Hail. Hail. So hail comes and right destroys crops. Because if you're talking a plague, you know you're not talking like little drops of hail, right? Like you know, hailstorm, right? destroys crops. So what's left, the locusts are going to come and completely consume. And it will be so much that you won't see the land. There'll be that many insects. And if you see a swarm come in, right, it's going to block also the sun, right? So it's, it's I think, a, a very interesting foreshadowing of what's coming, right, is that the locusts darken the sky, and then the next thing that's going to happen is darkness darkens the sky. And then the absolute worst, which is death comes in the middle of the darkness, right in the middle of the night. So it's 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 getting these last three are getting increasingly terrible and frightening and um, and devastating to the people. Is there a commentary about dark, darker and darkest? I, I can't imagine that I made it up. So I, so I'm sure I read it somewhere that. You know, that this is one kind of dark, then comes the plague of darkness, and then comes the worst of all, which is literal and metaphoric yeah. darkness, right? That's, that's as dark as it gets as your child yeah. dies. All right. Um, I don't know. Okay, they shall devour the surviving remnant that was left to you after the hail, and they shall eat away all your trees that grow in the field. So now we're talking about the food supply for Egypt, right? Now you're talking about the people being at the edge after this of possible starvation. All the supermarket shelves are empty. <laughs> yeah. Totally empty. Yeah. They go, they go further. They, they say in the text, not, not only will this this happen in terms of the locusts devouring your crop that's left because that's presumably something that is not has not happened it has happened before right but they say but beyond that it's going to fill they're going to fill your palaces and your house right so that's that's where we're going now okay. so set and verse six and so it's going to go past what locust swarms normally do which is finish eating and 
move on. Uh, that they will fill the palaces and the houses. What else did this? What else did this? Yeah. The darkness. Frogs. Right? Don't you know the song about frogs in his bed and frogs on his head? They were everywhere, even in his underwear. Right? So. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The things some of us have to do to pay the bills. Can I just tell you? You shouldn't know from some of the things we have to do. So it's going to fill the palace and the houses of all your courtiers and of all the Egyptians. Now, notice the parallel language here. Something that neither your fathers nor fathers' fathers have seen from the day they appeared on earth to this day. Do you see the bookend? What's the other bookend? The children and the children's children. Talking about the future of the Israelites. Something that, you know, it's looking forward. That you're going to tell your children and your children's children because it's about their future and right and here it's talking about Egypt's past because it's going to right be the end for Pharaoh and his and his whole retinue and his whole army all right uh Bert want to go to seven? Oh, Pharaoh's uh, court he said to him how long shall this one be snare to us let the men go to worship the Lord their God. Are they not yet aware that Egypt is? Are you not yet aware that Egypt is lost? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, "Go worship the Lord your God. Who are the ones to go?" Moses replied, "We will all go, young and old. We will go with our sons and daughters, our flocks and herds, for we must observe the Lord's festival." But he said to them, "The Lord be with you, the same as I mean to let your children." The Lord be with you the same as I mean to let your children go with you. Clearly you are bent on mischief. No, you men go and worship the Lord since that is what you want. And they were expelled from Pharaoh's presence. All right. English is different. Because the Hebrew is tangled. The Hebrew is really tangled. Um, there's just no way to render it that isn't awful in English. So the Pharaoh's... Courtiers say to him, so now we've got a break in ranks, an open break in the ranks between Pharaoh and his courtiers, right? That they are now saying, um, like, get rid of this guy. Why are you keeping this guy around? How long is he going to be a snare to us? Because what has Moshe been saying? We need to go worship God for three days, right? Not exactly the biggest truth ever. Um, so, so finally they're saying, fine, let the men go worship their God. Who cares? Like, the, look at this business. Are you not yet aware that Egypt is lost? So the courtiers believe Moshe and his God have won. It's over for Egypt. Egypt is lost. Let, let them go give them what they're asking for. So a clear division now within the palace. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. So they're summoned this time. Moshe and Aaron are summoned and don't say anything. Right? So that's got to freak Paro out a little bit. Right? They just threatened him and left. And now Pharaoh calls them back and they don't say anything. And so Pharaoh has to speak. Right? Go. Worship Yudhe Vafe, your God. Who are the ones to go? 
And Moshe replies, we will all go, young and old. We will go with our sons, our daughters, our flocks, and our herds, for we must observe the festival of yod heh Chag Adonai. Right? The festival to Adonai. But he said to them, and this is where it gets really tangled, Yehichen Adonai Imachem. So it will be so that yod heh is with you, just as I will send y'all and your little ones. See, look, ki ra'aneged panechem. Evil is before your faces. So, the English is rendering ra'aneged panechem obviously as you are up to evil intent, right? You're you're not telling the truth. And what's what is Paro's? Why is Paro assuming that? What what makes him assume that? Don't they assume that just the men are the ones who deal with God, and that if they're taking the kids, that there's something else going on here? Absolutely. You want to hold the kids hostage. You, and your herds. Guys come back. Your flocks. Like what up? <laughs> I didn't come down with yesterday's hail, says Pharaoh. Like I, I know what you're up to. Forget about it. Um. So he wants to hold them hostage. He wants to hold them hostage. No, he says. Right? Lechu. Like, y- y- you men can go. Hagvarim. The the males. The evdu et yudhevafe. And serve, worship. This is the same word in Hebrew. God. Right? Um, since that's what you... Basically, that's what you asked for. That, that's what you want. And this is Pharaoh trying to be a negotiator, trying to convince Moshe that this is what Moshe wants. That's not what Moshe wants. Moshe wants everybody to go, but a good, a good salesman, right, is going to say, okay, fine, you can let the men go since that's what you want so badly. Right. Um, and then Pharaoh kicks them out. It's amazing to me that Pharaoh is still negotiating. At this point, you know, or you think he'd be like, go, go, go. Well, he's got his, his, uh, uh, his work ego. Sort of, we're pushing him to uh, make a deal. Yeah, but God has hardened his heart. Yeah. Yeah. So, to George's point, it is. It is a wonder that Pharaoh would be stupid enough to continue to negotiate. However, we have the intervention of Yudhe Vavhe hardening Pharaoh's heart. And it's a, been a constant source of commentary and exploration by the rabbis about what does that mean? How can one, how can God, if God is just, how can God hold Pharaoh accountable for behavior that God, God's self has influenced? That feels like a God who's cheating at the game. And in general, setting Pharaoh up for failure. So in general, the, the, the commentary seems to go along the lines of, because the rabbis have to defend, obviously, they have to defend God. They have to defend this character God and what this character God does. We don't, but they do. So in needing to defend this God, the rabbis say, well... Really, it's that Pharaoh was already a terrible despot and tyrant, and God just nudges it along. Had Pharaoh chosen to do something else, had had chosen to 
listen and be receptive and whatever and and mitigate some of the horrible circumstances of the people, then perhaps God wouldn't have intervened in this way. We also need to make Moshe the hero. 100%. Moshe has to be the hero. Um, Speaking for God, though, right? Moshe doesn't really do anything. It's God who does it. Um, And that... But because Pharaoh didn't, and he was so awful and rotten and evil, right? That's what happens. If that's what you're going to do, and if that's who you are, then the forces of the universe are going to conspire to help you go there. Oh, I hope that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, but generally, what we generally what we hope for is not that, right? We hope for tshuva. We are a tshuva-based, yes. a repentance atonement-based people who says you can always change. The gates of Teshuvah are always open. That's generally, right, but we have a very different story here. And, right, this is not the part we usually choose to go to to talk theology, right, because we're uncomfortable with this and should be, right? That's a problematic God who would harden Pharaoh's heart and then kill him for it. Take advantage of it. Always, Reuben. That's an excellent question. We don't know. The recording has been lost to us, this episode. Uh, in the, the women's translation, it, it, this is on, uh, and it says notables instead of men in the beginning. It says, let their notables go to worship the God. In, in what Bert read, it said men. Where, where are you? This is... Um, verse what? Verse what? There was a number. Uh, seven. Before eight. That might be seven. You know, you can't get anything past this group. <laughs> what a group. All right. So, so it says, let the, the notables go, which is fine, except the next paragraph is all about men. I just point that that should not be one of the places... Where they change it, but that had. Shlach et anashim. Send the men. Yeah. Send the people. Since since we digressed already, one I have to <laughs> see one more digression. When the books um, don't agree with each other, one says we will all go regardless of social station, and the other book says regardless of age. And I'm wondering if social. We will all go. Verse 9? It's just, yes, in verse 9. Right. That's right. It says young and old. Yours says, one says young and old, and the other one says regardless of social station, and I'm wondering whether social station lowers as you get older? No, it's not social station. It's not arenu, our youth, uvaziknenu, and our elders, our elderly. Okay. Nelech will go. That's a bad translation. Yeah, well, or they... They have a re- I'm sure they have a good reason for translating it as social station, but it's not evident in the Hebrew. Okay. Like if, okay. if they mean that we gain status as we become elders, possibly because in this, in this culture, That's what elders would have had way more status than 
youth. Youth means um, teenagers and right. <laughs> we certainly define youth as under 60 uh, now, but back then, not so much. You were lucky to make it to 60. So, um, so I'm not sure what that's about. All right. So, so then they are expelled from Pharaoh's presence, and then we know what happens, right? We know that here comes the locusts, right? We get the locust swarm. And the next thing we're going to get is the plague of Choshech, the plague of darkness. For how many days is the plague of darkness? Three days. Why is it three days? That was going to be the length of the festival. Because that's how long they wanted to be out in the desert worshiping God for God's festival, a three-day festival. So you didn't give us the three days? No worries. We're going to give you something for three days, uh-huh. right? Um, and there's, if you like this stuff, there, um, there's a scientific explanation that looks at each one of the plagues and how they relate to each other, um, and which is fascinating. I did it with you one year. Um, it's very interesting. Like, in other words, these they don't pull the plagues out of nowhere. Right? These are phenomena that happen in the region at different times. What makes them the plagues and makes it show off God's power is that it happens when Moshe holds his rod up. Right? It's not that it's never happened before. So everybody was like, ooh, we can explain on you know mysteries of the Bible. We can explain the plagues. It's like, so? <laughs> you can explain the plagues. Like, so? That has absolutely nothing to do with the story. The st- it would be weird if that stuff had never happened anywhere before. That's not nearly as impressive as as soon as Moshe holds his rod, the thing that everyone's scared of the most in the region comes. Right? That's what makes it a, a powerful proof of, of God's power. <laughs> um, but but it is interesting, if you like this stuff, to, to look at the the ways the plagues relate to each other scientifically in terms of stuff like the hail killed crops. Now you've got locusts who are going to finish off the vegetation. That means that the ground is really, there's, there's nothing to hold the dirt in place, right? So when you say the plague of darkness, a lot of scholars go to this is a chamsin. So if you've been in the Middle East and you've experienced the chamsin, it is not dark because it's just dark. The sun is still in the sky. Why is it dark? Because particulate matter blows in where the Scirocco and blocks the sun. That dark is like you have to cover your nose and mouth because the dark is caused by stuff in the air. And so if all the vegetation is gone, now you bring in a chamsin, what's going to happen to the... It's going to be like completely dark, right? Because there's nothing to hold, if that wind comes, there's nothing to hold the dirt on the ground. So it's going to be a darkness, and, and the Torah says, like, that they can touch. It's because, if you, again, like this stuff, it's because it's it's stuff. You can touch it because it's not empty air. It's dark because it's filled with all of this It's like a sandstorm. Yeah, well, even after the TBS documentary, 
I just remember the Grapes of Wrath. That that was enough for me to kind of get it. <laughs> no, I read the book. Are you kidding? <laughs> the movie. I read the book. Um, that's exactly right. It's, it's going to be pretty pretty devastating. All right. So we and then we know right. We know what happens from. There. So we're going to go back and look at our Bo El Paro stuff. You're getting two packets. So that one is two pages, I think. Look and see, Lynn. Got it? We're going to drop down to the paragraph that says, that you may know that I am yud heh All the way at the bottom. There's a single sentence all the way at the bottom, yeah? yeah. It actually should be in yellow for you. Is it highlighted? Yes. Because our copier colors... Copies in color. Whether I wanted to or not. So, all right. That you may know that I am Yudhe Vavhe. That all may know that Yudhe Vavhe isn't God. God is an ideal we fashion to make sense out of life. We see the suffering and the pain, and we imagine a God who is above it all. A God who only loves. A God who will redeem us and reward us and take care of us. But this God is not Yudhei-Vavhei. This is human abstraction, not divine reality. Yudhei-Vavhei is not God, not an idea, not anything conceivable by you or me, not anything we can think about, not anything we can imagine, not anything we can worship or idolize. Yudhei-Vavhei is not anything at all. Yudhei-Vavhei is reality. With all its pain, with all its suffering, with all its injustice. Yudhei is reality. With all its love, with all its joy, with all its genius. What our Torah is telling us is that we must look beneath the obvious, beneath the surface of things, beneath the shallow dualities and embrace the greater unity. We must see that both Pharaoh and Moshe are in Yudhei that Yudhei includes both the Redeemer and the oppressor. We must see that we, as expressions of Yudhei made in the image of Yudhei also contain Moshe and Pharaoh, Redeemer and oppressor. Our hearts, no less than Pharaoh's, are hardened with stubbornness. Our deeds and words, no less than his, enslave and cause needless suffering. And we will suffer for our pharaonic nature. We will bring plagues down upon our houses, no less frightening than those visited upon the house of Pharaoh. But we are also Moshe, also the Redeemer. How can we move from Pharaoh to Moshe? There is only one way. We must come to Pharaoh. We must come to see that he is us, dwells in us, has a respected role to play in us, as did the Pharaoh in the Joseph stories but that he has gotten out of hand, the Pharaoh that no longer remembers, right? the Pharaoh that no longer knows Joseph. We must come to embrace Pharaoh as a part of ourselves and ourselves as part of Yerevave. We must free ourselves of dualistic notions that pit a good God and good me against the evils of everyone else. We must come to see that evil is a part of both Yerevave and myself and that the only way to handle evils is not to deny it, but to come to it own up to it, take responsibility for it, and do our best to channel its power for the good. 
a profound teaching by a rabbi who stands by this in every single case, always. That we don't get to ask, why cancer? We don't get to ask that, because if you are going to talk about Yudhei Vofei, then you're also talking about cancer. You don't get to pick. Rami Shapiro is hardcore in his theology. Reality, capital R. We don't get to pick from that and say, this is God, this is not. We don't get to do that, says Rami. It's If we believe, Moloko Aretz Kavodo, that all the world is filled with God's Kavod, it's everything. It's everywhere. It's no thing. It's beyond things. It's beyond our categories of good and bad, right and wrong. It's all, it's all Yudhei Vavhei. And that means we contain all of it as well. Because we're created in the image of that. So we are both Moshe and Paro. Because if Paro and Moshe are both part of reality, guess what? So we are made in the image of reality. So At least know. this one. I mean, this is the one we got. I'm sure there are other ones. But, you know. Hmm? He puts Satan out of a job. I'm sorry? He puts Satan out of a job. Yes. It puts Satan, well, not necessarily because Satan is part of reality. <laughs> right? And Satan is here. Okay. When you're saying the whole world is filled with God's kavod, isn't kavod the word that's the actual Hebrew word for harmony? Of course. Yes. So... There's a linguistic relationship between Pharaoh's heart is kaved, right? But it also means kaved, heavy meaning worthy of respect, worthy of honor. And that is certainly God's kavod, right? So even in the Hebrew, there's there's linkage. Um, and, and earlier, Moshe talks about he's kaved of svatayim. He's heavy of mouth, right? So it's 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 everywhere, absolutely. And, and we're gonna Waskow's gonna go there. Art Waskow's gonna go there. <coughs> You're thinking it's very hard to be Jewish, <laughs> indeed. But would you like to say more specifically? Unless, if something bad happens to you and you ask for mercy and you're not rescued from it, what kind of life is that then? Your child is sick, right, and it's not getting better. So that's bad. That's a. It's a better reality to say God didn't answer me. God picked me for this and isn't listening to my prayers and is not taking mercy on me. <laughs> so you then imagine what it's like for me at the bedside of people who are dying who are not going to get better I should say it's because they deserve it what kind of comfort is that right it, what Rami is saying it sounds harsh but I like it much better in terms of a you know response to life which is because the world contains cancer and we get cancer that's that's the way it is 
Now, what we do in that is up to us. Whether we show up to each other with love and support and kindness and mercy and all those things, or we turn our backs and shun people and because we can't deal with it and it makes us afraid, right? That's where we get to magnify a certain aspect of divinity over another. And, and that... I can see it when someone someone I'm very close to is struggling very hard with something terrible that happened to him recently. And he just can't get over it. And he keeps saying, why is it always me? What? what why? I, I'm a good person. Right? And I just want to throttle him. I love him and I want to kill him. I'm like, it's. It's not about you. Not everything's about you. It's not about you deserve it or you... Shit happens. That's reality, capital R. Dogs get run over. Like, I mean, stuff happens and it's not about you. I am ready to sit with your suffering all the day long. And I will be here on the other end of the phone cooking dinner, whatever you need. But not to listen to... Why did this happen to me? Because I don't have an answer for that that you're going to like. Right? Because because I don't find meaning. I don't think there is meaning in why it happens to an individual. Because then I'd have to believe that something is making that distinction and decision. And that, I know all of us have seen too much suffering of innocence to go there. I find it very comforting, on the other hand, having grown up in a society where there was a clear distinction between good and evil, and if you do good, you'll be fine. My mother prayed the last days of her life that I wouldn't go to hell because I'd become Jewish. That, that has nothing to do with anything, and I find it comforting that if you accept that life happens the way it happens, you're part of that process. I think, on the other hand, regretting that it's, why is this happening to me, it makes me feel like every day I get is so precious. And I don't think that anything that happens to me is any different from anything that happens to anybody else. Why not me? Hmm? Why not me? It, it happens. And it, it's just life. And, and we're alive. And we're still alive. And we still have a chance to do a little part every morning. Moda and me. My version of that prayer I translated another way. Let me get it a little better today. Life is precious and it happens to all of us in every way. And so the framing questions are what define our relationship to the reality, capital R, right? The framing question is either why me or why not me? How come it wasn't me today? Right. Right. Because somebody else got that phone call that it's stage four. I mean, so, somebody got a call that there was a car accident. As we're sitting here, someone's getting that phone call. Why not me? Right. And so it's it's about our framing questions and our framing narrative that ha- helps us translate reality into meaning, right? And that's our job, right? That's why we have hearts and minds and spirits, Rami would say, is that we're to use them and cultivate them to create meaning in response to reality. And we get a choice. And we get a choice. Every single moment we get a choice. And and the gift is that we're part of this reality business as consciousness in skins. That's the great greatest miracle of all, right? That reality is conscious of itself because of us. In us. And 
that we're never to take that for granted or else life just feels like a random empty crapshoot that you know why bother and and I don't mock that I'm saying that really is one way to walk through life the other is the one that Judy just Judy's I mean, so beautifully articulated. Right? I mean, you've you've been through the windshield. I have a few times. You've been through the windshield a few times, and when you've been through the windshield, you learn one of two right. things: right. either like life sucks, or how to appreciate what we have. Like Itzhak Perlman, that famous story of him. Um, the, a string broke while he was in the middle of this huge, difficult piece that needed all yes. five strings, or however many strings were on a violin, four, thank you. He needed all four strings, and <laughs> one popped, and um, he continued to play this really difficult piece on three strings, compensating for where the fourth would have right created a different note. And so they asked him afterwards, like, why didn't you stop? Like, and just like, Wait till you could get another violin, and um, and he had gone up there, of course, you know, crippled from not not crippled, but you know, compromised physically from his um, hmm? from polio, and um, and so he stood there with, and reached for his crutches and said, "We play with what's left." Th- those there are two responses, right? You're crippled from polio, you become this master musician. You can say, "Look, I need another violin," right? Because I'm not compromising, right? You know. Or we play with what's left. And, you know, the audience was, of course, on its feet and, you know, going bananas when he finished. And because I think everybody in that room got it. They watched it pop and they knew, I mean, you're looking at the physical condition of this man and you realize he's playing with what's left and making this gorgeous, incredible experience for everybody. And that's, that's what happens when people do that, right? We, we are so deeply moved by the beauty of the experience they create. How does Rami talk about other parts of the Torah? For instance, the, um, the, the Noah story where God says, oh, you know, everybody's bad and so I'm going to punish them. I'm going to drown them except for this good person who gets to go on the ark. How would he talk about that? The same way as this, that how come Pharaoh's going to get tossed into the ocean or the Sea of Reeds and die and the Egypt and the Israelites are going to go free? Because reality contains both. Reality contains... God contains both. Then how is God making that decision to, to punish some and not others? I'm a little lost in the question. It's me. I'm sorry. It's my fault. I can't quite understand the question if God is both evil and good, you have to come out of the literal meaning of the story you have to come out of the literal story right. you, you have to come to the symbolic level so what does it mean some people right there's an aspect of divinity that that results in <coughs> in destruction in, in everybody getting wiped out and there's an element an aspect of divinity that harbors and protects life so Rami's not reading it literally. He's not. That's what I'm saying. You have to come out of the literal story about God's deciding this and about that one and putting this here. You have, you have to come up out of that in, in order to say these are all symbols. We're going to leave the actual linear story of what happens that God makes a decision about about the Egyptians. We have to come up out of that to say these are all aspects of the divine. All of it. 
and and then we and re, and reality in the world that we live in. And so, what is the meaning of this set of symbols being in relationship the way they are? Right? I, I know it's it's hard, but it, it's it's when you're reading literally versus reading symbolically that Rami finds the power. Right? Come unto Pharaoh. Moshe has to come into Pharaoh. That's here, right? That's not a literal part of the story. In the literal story, Pharaoh's not inside Moses. Pharaoh can't exist inside Moses. Pharaoh's on the throne, right? In the literal story. We have to come out of the literal narrative to go, what what does that narrative tell us about life? The phrase come into Pharaoh means it's because Pharaoh's already here. Did you see what I'm saying? But Pharaoh's not literally inside Moses. Robbie came here one time to speak. Yeah. Is there any chance we could ever get him back for a scholarly weekend or something? I don't see why not. <laughs> I would say, going back to the passage that you read, without, without the further commentary that we just had, which sort of puts it into the how people function, it's it didn't do enough for me for me to figure out the um, the meaning of what was there. That's why we're here. And, and so and so it was a it would, and of course whatever what, what you said about suffering and walking through and, and I know all that and I believe all that and so forth. So I would thank you for going taking the time to. I call it job security. <laughs> that you didn't read this and go there right away is a good thing in my world. <laughs> that's, why I'm that, that's, that's right. So could we say that another another way of, of um, characterizing what what uh, Rami is saying is that you can't you can't really say God is good or God is evil because good and evil are human categories. God. Embodying reality, capital R, there is stuff that happens that makes people happy and causes community form and that sort of moves things forward. There's also stuff that happens that hurts us and depending on how we choose to respond to it, we can, we can fall in on ourselves or fall in on our communities and shrivel up. Or we can also reach out to others and form communities to pull ourselves out. Okay, but all these things, but characterizing it as good or evil, is ultimately pointless. Yes, it 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 may not be pointless, but it, but it's at most descriptive of our experience of it. And doesn't help us move forward one way or the other. Unless we want to say we're going to band together to fight what we perceive to be evil. Yeah. Uh, you know, right, so, right. so yeah, so it's, um, it's all, it's all subjective, right? And, and descriptive at best to use those words, but in reality, it just is, right? Without human beings to worry about it, it just is. Um, locusts just eat a bunch of stuff. That's what they do. That's what locusts do. It's not evil. It's not bad. But it's bad if it's your crop that's supposed to feed your family. Now, right, I have a judgment about whether it's good or bad. All right, let's go to Pam's point. Go to um, the second, the handout that says the Shalom Center. Um, Go to page two of three of that handout. 
right? Where it says translations say, go to Pharaoh, but bo means come, not go. You got it? Okay. How can God be saying come unless God is already there, right, to George's earlier point? Already within Pharaoh saying, come toward me. And God continues, hikbaditi libo, which is usually translated, I have made his, Pharaoh's heart, heavy or hard. But the Hebrew root kavod can mean heavy or glorious or honorable or radiance to Pam's point. Perhaps the English sense of grab, oh, let's skip that. All right, go down to, so the phrase can be read. So the phrase can be read as, I, God, have put my radiance in his, Pharaoh's heart. In other words, come to me, the me who lives hidden inside Pharaoh. Don't be afraid of Pharaoh and don't be swallowed up by rage against Pharaoh. For what looks like his radiance, his glory is really my radiance, my glory. Everything he seems to be is simply a refraction of me. For a moment, the glory of the unity of the universe seems to be embodied in him, but it really goes far beyond him. As you, Moses, are already beginning to see, that radiance will soon be fully visible, not in Pharaoh, but in his overthrow, in history turned upside down, or rather turned right side up. And I hope you hear what I'm saying. For us today, this can be a constant, powerful, and crucial lesson. What seems to be an irresistible, dominant power in the world, whether it is a political or economic boss, ruler, corporation, or a personal addiction or obsession, is only a garment of God. And whenever I can see through the garment into the divine glory at its heart, I can begin to free myself. Come to Pharaoh where I am. Come with both courage and compassion. Together, they make up what today we call nonviolent resistance. Shabbat shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.